Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Tsarich Iyun podcast brought to you by Yeshivat Oraita. My name is David Silverstein and I am joined today by my friend Rosh Yeshiva and first repeat guest on the Tsarich Iyun podcast, Rav Yitzhak Blau. Rav Blau, thank you so much for uh, coming back on the podcast. It is a pleasure to be back. So before we get into the topic of today's podcast, uh, since we spoke last, a lot has happened in the world. Uh, Israel has a new government for the first time in many years. Um, Kevin McCarthy is again the Speaker of the House uh, in Congress. And most importantly of all, you have an exciting new initiative that you're working on now um, to try and translate uh, some of the exciting uh, intellectual material being produced by the religious Zionist world uh, into English and make uh, the English-speaking world more aware of the larger sort of rubric of Israeli orthodoxy. So maybe before we talk specifically about today's topic, maybe if you can give a brief sort of summary as to sort of what is this new project and what are the sort of larger goals and what are you trying to accomplish with this new initiative? Sure. So I feel that there's often a disconnect where Americans and Israelis don't know what's going on intellectually and culturally uh, across the ocean. And I think it's particularly uh, missing in terms of American awareness of the Israeli side in the sense that I think it's more important for two reasons. One is I think most Zionists do feel like Israel is currently the center of world Jewry. So I think if one is identifying with the state and think it really matters, I think a person would want to know what's going on here, what are the currents. Uh, Secondly, I really think Israel is a more varied place uh, in the religious world. Again, certainly if one is thinking about modern orthodoxy in the Datilumi world, right? how many modern orthodox post-high school institutions are there in all of the United States? Okay, uh, whereas in Israel, if one, even before one even gets to the Mechino, once it starts leaving, yeshi- starts listing Yeshivot Hezder, one has a tremendous variety of Yeshivot, including all kinds of interesting rabbis and thinkers. One starts to think about Rav Yuval Shurlau and Rav Yaakov Nagain, and I'm not going to do the whole list, but uh, I think it would be quite an extensive list. So I would very much like the uh, thoughtful American modern Orthodox Jew to be aware of what's happening. So I've started in two forums to summarize interesting written material. One is for the Tradition website. Okay, it's a series called Alt Shift. And sometimes other material on my Facebook page, often working off a newspaper called Makari Shon, which also is, uh, I think, an important uh, newspaper, particularly in the Dati Lumi world. Um, I think it's actually a great sort of uh, segue, uh, thinking about uh, Israeli orthodoxy and its relationship to the larger orthodox world, to the very important topic that we're going to talk about today, uh, the topic that uh, we're going to talk about is the centrality of details in the life of an observant Jew, and specifically the broader question of how does a person find meaning in relevance in the context of these details. To provide some context, when I first came to Israel, so I also was trained in American Yeshivot. I didn't have much exposure uh, during my time at YU to Rav Cook, but I do remember when I came to Israel, granted at that point you hadn't had your initiative of alt shift, but uh, I had to go the old school method of just you know opening up the book, and I came across a passage in Rav Cook where he talks about this idea 
of the relationship between the klal, between the general principle of the mitzvah and the prat. It's in an essay he has called Chacham Adif Minavi. And he has this really wild line, which when I first read for the first time, I was really shocked, where he says that there will be a time in human history, in uh, Jewish history, where what he describes as sinat ha-pratim kaber that all of a sudden the Jewish people um, will sort of feel a hatred, the word sinah is a powerful word, a hatred towards the specifics, towards the particulars of certain mitzvot. And he says when that happens, it's an indication that we're sort of at the brink of a new messianic dawning, where effectively, you know, the details will be able to be linked to the larger religious messages. But I thought, you know, as a starting point, maybe if you can just provide, not specifically Rav Cook's insight, um, but maybe give us a general overview as to sort of different perspectives among either Rishonim or Achronim, as to how do they navigate this tension, right? How do they, on the one hand, feel a passion about the Torah's broader vision, while simultaneously acknowledging that most of our religious lives are not necessarily rooted day in and day out in the Kalim, but we really feel our religion most sort of poignantly in the context of the Pratim. Okay, great. So maybe I'll start by outlining three models. Uh, we'll talk about Rambam, Rav Hirsch, and the Nitziv. So I think the best contrast is between Rambam and Rav Hirsch. Uh, if one reads Rav Hirsch's commentary on Chumash or Rav Hirsch in Chorev, there's a sense that every single detail is full of religious meaning and symbolism. Uh, things that you would think are, might be arbitrary. Like Rav Hirsch will explain why it's three rams and not two bullocks. These are things he thinks he has a reason for. Just to give one example, Rav Hirsch says, oh, it's not arbitrary that we put on the Shalyad before the Shalrosh. It's because Judaism at the end of the day values action more than intellectual uh, comprehension. Or Rav Hirsch will say there's a reason why the Shalyad is all four passages in one compartment, one cloth, and the Rosh is divided into four. So Rav Hirsch thinks he has a reason for everything. Uh, obviously, that comes with certain advantages, although sometimes we might find it a bit forced. Uh, on the other side of the divide would be Rambam and Morin where Rambam suggests that some of the details are actually arbitrary. There would be a mistake to look for a rationale, and there is a rationale for the general mitzvah, but not for the details. Now, you might say, why do you need details? So the way I understand Rambam is that for an act to have identity, it can't be too broad, right? If you want to have, this is what Jews do, so it can't be, oh, we thank God in some way, but everybody figures out how to thank him for Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Okay, then there'd be no identity to the mitzvah act. There'd be no sense of continuity. So for that reason, we need to have details. But in a certain sense, it could have been X just as well as Y. Right, so again, the Rambam just talked about advantages and disadvantages. So on the one hand, you don't have to force anything in theory. On the other hand, some people might find it less meaningful. Wait, you're telling me it, the arbaminum could have just as easily been, I don't know, a quince instead of the etrog? Right, so why is the etrog so important? Okay, so that's where Rambam and Rav Hirsch would go. The Nitziv has an interesting third model where he also is a bit Rambam-like, but he says it's to give an element of chok to every mitzvah, that maybe religious life is this combination of I fully understand and appreciate and identify with what I'm being told to do. In a certain sense, I almost don't even need God for it. I could just realize Shabbos is just a great thing with or without the divine command. And there might be another element where I'm trying to connect to God. And there, in a certain sense, maybe the more authority-based theme might matter more. So maybe some of the pratim give this almost helpful chok element to the world of Jewish practice. So maybe I'll start with that as uh, three models to think about. Yeah, I'll just sort of add a fourth model, um, the model of the kuzari, 
right, where the Kuzari thinks that um, sort of the details of the mitzvah are sort of analogous to the details of a medicinal prescription. So, for example, if you go to the doctor and he gives you medicine and he asks, tells you to take point, you know, 0.5 uh, cc's of medication, he means 0.5 and not 0.6, right? He means 0.5 and not 0.4. And the idea is if you really want to get maximum uh, efficacy when it comes to the medication, you got to do take the exact amount prescribed by the doctor. So the Kuzari thinks that mitzvot are sort of similar in the sense that God or the rabbis prescribe them in a very specific way. And for the Kuzari, much of the goals of the mitzvot is to achieve some type of prophecy. And the theory is if you do the mitzvot properly, with all of the specific details, right, is only through that medium where the prophetic element can possibly be kicked in. But just like if you take the wrong medication, right, it's not going to work. So if you do the mitzvot without the specific details, it's sort of not going to work either. Now, just one, one uh, area which I think is sort of like uh, particularly contentious here, uh, you mentioned before the Rambam. Now, it's sort of hard to sort of understand exactly what the Rambam is getting at there, right? If you think about an ordinary person's religious life, right? So most of the way in which she encounters religion day in and day out is through particulars. You know, someone just called me this morning and we were talking about the challenges of, you know, what are the problems with eating, you know, at a vegan restaurant which doesn't have a specific hechsher. So if I were to say to somebody, well, you know, there really isn't a formal problem with it per se, but it's just that we have these particulars that are there that are kind of arbitrary, it's hard to imagine that from a religious perspective that would actually inspire commitment. So maybe if you could just reflect for a few minutes on that view of the Rambam, because when you first hear this view of the Rambam, it's sort of kind of unsettling. I mean, just experientially, I mean, do you relate in any way to that Rambam, or do you think that Rambam, you know, is sort of kind of out there in the larger sort of pantheon of Jewish thought? Okay, excellent question. Uh, let me perhaps tone down the Rambam a little bit before I get to ways of uh, identifying with the Rambam, which is, I, I have to give credit to this. I, I once asked Rav Luchenstein about this Rambam, and he said, but it's not always clear what's a detail and what's the Ikar Mitzvah, which I think is a good point. Like, let's say I'm thinking about, I don't know, uh, Brit Milah. So would the Rambam say the eighth day is an arbitrary detail? It could have easily been the ninth day or the eleventh day. Or would he say, no, that is the essence of the mitzvah. The essence of the mitzvah is that a, a boy should enter the covenant on the eighth day, right? So once that's true, it could be that the Rambam is not suggesting he's just going to plug in arbitrary explanations to 80,000 things in halakha, maybe some aspects of mitzvah that somebody might have thought is a detail, the Rambam will define as being part of the ikar mitzvah and is subject to, you know, meaningful explanations. And I think if you actually went through the section of Mon Vukim, the third chilek, which deals with... Tameh Mitzvot, I think some of the category I just said will exist. You'll find cases where Rambam has an explanation of what seems like a detail. So it might not mean that, you know, all things that could possibly be details are arbitrary. I'll also point out that his example in that chapter, it's Gimel Chavav, is the world of Karbonot. And as many of you might know, the Rambam might have special reason to think that the sacrificial order could have been a more arbitrary endeavor than, um, than other mitzvot. Maybe in this context, I won't explain it, but uh, check out the Rambam's famous theory of why we have a sacrificial order. Okay, that being said, I would like to argue that there is power even to an arbitrary detail. Until now, I've been trying to argue that maybe not all the details are arbitrary even for Rambam. But I think there's power to an arbitrary detail. Let's try the following analogy. Okay, let us say that Americans would like to celebrate Thanksgiving. And they've decided that the way to celebrate Thanksgiving is to have turkey, cranberry sauce, and pumpkin pie. So for the sake of argument, let's say that's an arbitrary detail. We could have said you have a hamburger and uh, french fries. Okay, that's fine. But right now, once we've been doing it for hundreds of years and it is done across the country, it has taken on a force and identity of its own, right? And we'd be upset. Like if we came to Thanksgiving dinner and 
it was hamburger and fries. You say, this is just not Thanksgiving dinner. So I think it's important to realize in life that sometimes something that could have been A or B, once you walk down a certain path, then A gets a tremendous amount of power. So the fact that it could have been something else doesn't matter anymore. So I'm not sure everybody will find this uh, satisfying, but I think it is an important point that they even think about some of the power of, I don't know, the Pesach Seder. It's true that a lot of the symbols are meaningful. I'm not denying it. But some of the power of the Pesach Seder is you know that you know Jews have been doing this for 2,000 years. Or you know that uh, whatever Jews across the world are doing it, right? That if I move to, uh, to any arbitrary weird country, I went to the Jews community of New Zealand right now, the Pesach Seder would look roughly the same. So again, I would say, A, for Rambam, there might be more meaningful details than you first thought. And B, I don't think we should overlook the power of something that could have been different, that is in some sense arbitrary, to achieve force, intensity, and meaningfulness over time. Um, I think it is so undeniable that if a person you know, studies the Talmud and studies the classical codes, right, there is a lot of focus on details. And I'm curious if you think that is sort of a uniquely sort of a Jewish phenomenon. It's obvious that if you read, for example, the New Testament, you know, one of the critiques that early Christians had of Judaism was that we were sort of missing the forest for the trees, or maybe the trees for the forest, wherever the expression goes. The idea was we were so involved in the nitty-gritty, right, that we sort of lost sight of the larger religious messaging that was going on, sort of detached from all the specifics. I'm curious if you think that it is a unique feature of Judaism to sort of find God or find religious meaning in every dimension of religious life. You know, if you think about sort of an ordinary Jew's life from beginning in the morning until the evening, right, it is hyper-focused on specifics. So there are even customs about how you tie your shoes, right? And even though that's not say, a formal law, the idea that every dimension of Jewish life can be infused with meaning may actually be partially the unique contribution of Judaism. In fact, it's not surprising that when you have sectarian groups who are trying to challenge the authority of normative uh, rabbinic Judaism, they often go after the details. So I wonder sometimes if the Christians, in a certain sense, were onto something, meaning their critique was that, wait a second, there's something strange about this sort of protocol, and our answer would be, ain't hachanami, right? In other words, you you perceive it to be strange, but actually we perceive it to be the cornerstone of our faith. In fact, there's an incredible work by uh, Professor Chaim Samen, uh, called Halacha, the rabbinic idea of law, where he talks about this, where he talks about maybe the uniqueness of the Jewish project, of the Talmud and the larger sort of corpus, where we focus so much on details, is to find meaning in the nitty-gritty. So I'm curious if, from your experience, if you think that, like, this actually is a uniquely Jewish vision, and part of what makes Judaism particularly sort of uh, engaging is its focus not just on the generalities, but really on the details. Okay, another very, very interesting question. I'm going to give kind of a dual answer. I think it is something unique. It's hard for me to say. I don't know if I've studied every religion in the world, but it's definitely unusual, right? Judaism's focus on the specifics, the concrete, the detail, uh, halach in general is definitely uh, unusual. And I view that as a plus. I'll just say it's both a plus and a danger. And maybe we'll answer both. I think it is true. Like sometimes if I just teach a general value and don't concretize it at all, it remains too ephemeral. It might not really end up affecting me in the world of practice. Like, let's say we just had a mitzvah called honor your parents, but Chazal never gave any concrete way to do that. So uh, you might say, okay, in theory, I want to honor my parents, but it doesn't really happen. But if we're told very specifically, right, you know, 
take, bring them, you know, food and drink, especially when they're older, right? Don't sit in their chair, right? There are concrete things we do to reflect and inculcate this value. So that makes a difference. I think the same thing with staka. You could just be told in general, support the needy. But if you have things like Maser Ani and Maser that goes to the Levy and things like that, and Peya and Leket, right? So then these broader values are concretized in the real world. So that I think uh, we should. Okay, I probably should do a Benam Lamakum example also. Right, you want to have a relationship with God. Well, the fact that you have to pray multiple times a day uh, definitely is a way to enhance that relationship. And again, imagine if you're told, whenever you feel it, you know, go to the woods and cry out to God about. What if I don't feel it for a couple of weeks on end? Right? Do do will I be inculcating this value in my life? Okay. So all that I believe wholeheartedly. That being said, I think the Christians are onto something in the sense that the critique is not silly. I mean, there is a danger of getting caught up in the details and forgetting the larger vision. And here, uh, I have to reference an essay Rav David mentioned, referenced before, one of my favorite essays. Uh, Rav Cook, his essay, Chacham Adif Minavi, he says, to some degree, that's why some secularists can't identify with religion. Because we've portrayed a religion that has a tremendous amount of details and does not have a sweeping vision. And Rav Cook is almost sympathetic to that critique. I should say, I once wrote a Times of Israel post about this. Like, often in my life, if I had any frustrations with Judaism and I needed a rabbi to articulate it, it was often Rav Cook. That Rav Cook was a, and I think it's a tremendous amount of honesty. Rav Cook was a very, very passionate Jew. He was not considering, you know, converting out. Okay, but Rav Cook was also able to appreciate how aspects of religious life could provide difficulties and frustrations. So I think for Rav Cook, he could understand why someone would say there's only details. And to use the example of David used before, like let's say someone talks a lot about, you know, what order they should cut their fingernails. Like that is a major theme for them. But we never hear anything about, you know, the world of coming close to God, what it means to be in the image of God, of uh, making the world a better place, right? All there is is, you know, which fingers, uh, which nail should be cut first, or which shoe should be put on first. So I think that is not a good thing. With all Judaism's uh, emphasis on the detail, right, the loss of any poetic beauty or sweeping vision would really be a significant loss. Um, just experientially in terms of thinking about sort of how these different models, thinking about the Rambam, where you mentioned Fourth Nitzv, or I mentioned the Kuzari, Rav Cook, etc. Just experientially, when you're thinking about like an ordinary person's religious life, right? So for example, let's sort of like conceptualize for a second the laws of Shabbat. You mentioned examples before that I think are sort of intuitively more accessible. I mean, it's, it's easy to understand like why not sitting in my father's chair is an expression of kibbutz Avain. It's easy to understand why Maserani or such all the different uh, tithing rituals are part of a larger vision of tzedakah. But I think it's a lot more complicated sometimes when you're experiencing religion like in the trenches to really get a sense of sort of how the details actually reflect that larger vision. Like Rav Cook in that passage you read for referenced seems to have this like very firm belief that if we do the work properly we'll be able to connect the details to the larger vision. It seems almost like he's articulating or he's channeling the project of Rav Hirsch. That, you know, he thought that like if you really worked hard enough so all of a sudden you would see it's almost like if you, you know no mathematics on a high enough level you'll understand why pi can't can't be 3.15. You know, I know mathematics on a low level, so I understand why it won't work, but if you do a higher level mathematics, you understand why sort of changing the whole category of pi will, uh, will sort of undermine the entire system. 
So Rav Cook, you know, describes a situation where in theory, if you really understood everything well enough, these details would make a lot of sense to you. But just experientially, just, you know, less sort of intellectually in the abstract, more experientially in the real world. When you think about, for example, the laws of Shabbat, something we experience all the time, and you encounter, for example, all the details around the rules of Bishop, all the rules of cooking. So, for example, just a few weeks ago, someone asked me a question like, how do you make tea on Shabbos? And there's a dispute between, let's say, the Mishnah Brura and Moshe Feinstein about do you use a cliche or a cliche and without really understanding the laws of Bishul in all their intricacies, just like experientially, are there times in your own religious life where you go uh, Shabbos morning to make a cup of tea and you're pouring it in the cliche and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I may understand all the analytics and I understand sort of how this plays out in the rules of Bishul, right? But just it does sometimes feel, I think for a lot of people sometimes, well, wait a second, like in what way is this connected to a larger religious vision? And even if you're confident that it's there, right, not knowing what it is oftentimes can be frustrating. So not necessarily appealing to the model of, let's say, the Nazi who talks about the Chok, but thinking more in a Rav Cook, Rav Hirsch sort of lens, right? How would you sort of experience your Shabbos being mindful of these virtues as really being symptomatic of a much larger vision? Okay, so that's a good question. And I freely admit that I'm sometimes frustrated by details. Maybe I'll just say one thing about Shabbos first, because I think that lends itself to a particular response that might not apply elsewhere, which is as follows. Like, let's say somebody said, I'd like to have a Shabbos, because Shabbos has so many positive elements, uh, you know, the focus on family, the focus on community, taking a break from the work week, it, so many things going for it. But why do I need all these Yisurim, right? It could just work with, you know, the mitzvah to save Kiddush and Sudot. So I would argue that just, that's just not true, meaning the Shabbos is the best example of how restrictions can be liberating, Prohib- prohibitions can be a source of freedom, that the, the fact that I know that I can't answer the phone, I can't check my email, etc., like that is precisely what enables Shabbos to be Shabbos. So again, I'm not saying that explains every detail in the Shabbat you know, uh, rubric, but there, I think there should be appreciation sometimes that the mechlol, that the generality, like I need prohibitions. And if there's going to be prohibition, there's going to be a detail. I, I should also throw this in as well. That's okay. Maybe the answer will be a little bit longer. I think we have to realize like you can have a rule or without some kind of detail. Like e- even like, I don't know, let's say you want to have a post office. So there has to be an hour the post office closes, right? So you decide the post office closes at three. Now, from a philosophical perspective, you could, what do you do? You knock on the post office door and says, is there a philosophical difference between three and 305? There is no, but okay, but you had to pick some time that, that there has to be some way of functioning. So if we want Shabbat to focus our energies away from work, away from creative labor, right? So we need prohibitions by definition. So again, that would be a way of thinking about the prohibitions in a general general sense, not every specific detail, but I do identify with what David said. I've had moments of frustration, and I'll tell you how it affects my life in two ways. One, it's not an accident. As an educator, I think I'm a pretty pretty varied Torah educator, but if you ask me what I love teaching, I would say Gemara, Machshava, and Chumash. Right. I like Gemara, which is more theoretical, even though it's halachic ideas, right? Machshava, which is more, you know, spiritually, existentially inclined. And Chumash, for me, also has a tremendous literary and existential element. And I admit, I'm not so eager to sign up for practical halacha, right? Not because I don't think it's worthy of being known, but I think a teacher has to teach what they're most passionate about. I think you're a much more effective teacher if you're excited. And I freely admit, maybe it's a shortcoming. I'm not so excited about all the nitty gritty of halachic detail of teaching them. So it does affect me that way. 
I would also say sometimes, and again, perhaps it's a little bit more radical, I would say sometimes I kind of feel like, you know what, as long as I'm doing something that's a respected shita, I don't have to go crazy about what the details are. I'll just give you an example. Like, I grew up without uh, brushing my teeth with toothpaste on Shabbat. That was the way I was raised. My family doesn't use toothpaste. Fine. And at some point, you know, I felt like, you know, I feel better in the morning if I have toothpaste. And uh, salvation, if I recall correctly, my body was safe, allow it. So I basically said, you know, enough for him allow it. It's okay. I didn't have to do, like, you know, a one-month study of... Uh, what malacha brushing your teeth might be. So I think some of the way I navigate it is it's not, I think it's important in general sense, certainly in the Shabbos example, but A, I don't spend so much time teaching those details, and B, in terms of learning, in terms of practice, I often feel as long as what I'm doing is not some crazy maverick position that maybe I don't have to make that the focus of my, you know, religious introspection. Funny mention the issue of the, sort of the arbitrary nature of rules in general, irrespective of whether they're religious or secular rules. I remember one summer I was learning at the West Side Colo. I remember they had a rule that until two o'clock you were able to get two hot dogs and soda for like I don't know, let's say a dollar and fifty cents. And it was a problem because uh, Mincha, the West Side Colo, was at one forty-five. So what would happen was a bunch of guys from the West Side Colo, myself included, that we felt that we were being cheated out of the uh, good deal of the hot dogs because of this arbitrary <laughs> rule. So I remember that we would show up like at two o three, and I felt bad for the manager because you know he was just like a random guy who was sort of you know not necessarily manager but someone working behind the counter, and he would say sorry it's two o three, and he wasn't a Jewish guy. And we said to him like we can't be penalized for doubting Mincha with a minion. So he, he said no, I'm going to ask the manager. And then I remember this was before cell phones. I remember the next day we came back at two o three, and he said that uh, no, you get basically a Mincha exemption that effectively if you come back at two o three, so you can still get the hot two hot dogs and a soda for a dollar fifty cents, and this sort of captures this idea that like it can't be that you know you have to have rules and uh, yeah it should be two o'clock but uh, even the two o'clock hot dog rule there can be a minor exception if you're going to dive a mincha but um, I will sort of uh, sort of raise another issue which I think is really related to the question of details and you mentioned earlier by the way just parenthetically I think that thing you mentioned before about you know relying on different shitot I think in and of itself is sort of worthy of a podcast and I do think that sort of reflects a general orientation about how you specifically or how Judaism more broadly relates to details and sort of what does it mean to have a view as being part of the larger sort of canon of a normative rabbinic sort of options but I do think you mentioned before that one of the real challenges this is something that I personally struggle with is you know we spend most of our lives as educators especially as people who teach Gemara you know really in the you know, you learn Masechah Ketubah, which you're learning right now, and you're sort of in the details, the back and forth. And, you know, you spend most of your time in terms of thinking about halachic practice very much, you know, in the nitty gritty. And you mentioned that, you know, there is this risk that sometimes the larger sort of focal points of the biblical narrative get lost. You know, I saw on Twitter that uh, Rabbi Josh Uter had this very interesting thread, or maybe it was a connection to articles, where he called it Sacred Slogans. And I thought it was a very creative uh, sort of enterprise where he was taking all the classical slogans of the Torah of, you know, Kedoshim Tiyu, Tzedek 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 you know, of Tzalem Elohim. He was trying to flesh out, like, what are the religious virtues that these themes are talking about? And, and I wonder sometimes, like, what would be the best way to sort of not lose focus of those sort of more grandiose visions? Because we can all agree that Judaism is detail-oriented, but it does have a vision for society. 
And, you know, we joke around, like, you know, how do you say tikkun olam in Hebrew, right? But, you know, the joke is funny, <laughs> but there is a concept called tikkun olam, and even though there is scholarship, you know, Rabbi J.J. Shachter and other people talk about, like, and Rabbi Sachs has a piece about this, about sort of how entrenched really is that in classical Jewish sources, we do believe that there is a larger vision for humanity and for Judaism beyond just sort of the specifics. So how do you balance that? Meaning, how do you make sure that these sort of very significant, oftentimes revolutionary ideas that are found in the Torah don't get lost in all the details of Hilchah Shabbos, even if you find them meaningful, right? How do you sort of make sure that we still do have a larger vision that we're talking about? You know, it's very interesting because I realize something right now in your question that I had not thought of before, that much of my educational endeavors over the last two decades really reflect exactly what Rav is getting at. Like, what, what things have I done in education? So one of the things I've done is I wrote one book. It's a book about the agadic sections of Gemara, right, the non-legal portions. And some of it is this sense that, oh, the world of yeshiva tends to focus almost all of its energies on the legal portions and leaves out uh, all these agadic sections. And again, I think if one's looking in the quest for meaning, okay, not that there aren't difficult agadot, but agadot more easily lends itself to that quest for larger meaning than debating like how much an ox has to pay in a different, specific case of goring. So I think that's part of it. Uh, I've become very into Mahshava, right? When my publishing tends to be articles, like leave aside books, like articles of Jewish thought, not so much articles about halachic topics, even from a Lumdish perspective. So I think a lot of what's going on here is that I'm really reacting to that, that I think sometimes in the world of Jewish education, okay, we've got, we've fallen into Rav Cook's trap, that we're in the world of details, but we're not in the world of, of larger meaning. So I think uh, that's part of it. I think it's part of my educational goal. In fact, uh, well, if I can give a, I guess I'm going to write the podcast, I could give a plug for Araita. Okay, so one of the things I really like about Araita is that Araita will often have Gemara in the morning and Gemara at night, but the afternoon will be Machshav and Tanakh Shirim, which uh, I always find it funny when I'm explaining to people who don't know the world of Yeshiva, I say, that's not a Gemara heavy curriculum. That's a Gemara light curriculum, right? Two out of three star. That in many Yeshiva, it's every Seder of the day. So again, I would say I'm affected that way. And I want to, in our learning world, both my own learning and my teaching, I want to have that, those kinds of encounters. And I would say we shouldn't view that as like somehow non-traditional because maybe it wasn't what was done, I know, in, uh, in the mirror. Because just think about Tanakh and Gemara. Like Tanakh chose to put the stories in. Like we don't start with HaChodesh Zalachet. Okay, apparently the narrative matters. And Chazal chose to include the Agada in the same book in the Talmud Babli. So I think we're, we're well within the tradition in the fact that those things have to be part of the discourse. Um, wait, there was another thing I was going to say about it. I just sort of add one point to what you're yeah, sure, thinking. So, you know, th this issue of sort of how do we integrate uh, details within the context of the larger vision. So I, I personally think that one of the reasons why uh, Jewish curriculum, um, including uh, Shiva Raita, although I agree it is a diverse curriculum, I think one of the reasons that uh, historically, and it continues to be the case, as so much of the focus of our learning is on details, is because in a certain sense, part of what we're trying to inculcate here is a sense of Jewish uniqueness. I mean, education is not only about content, it's about sort of affirming a sense of identity. In fact, I remember one time I was 
I, I saw a video, I forgot where this is from, but um, I'm pretty sure it was Mike Pence. But if it wasn't Mike Pence, it was a Mike Pence type who was running for, for office and he happened to make his way to Brooklyn to sort of try to uh, commission the uh, Hasidic community to sort of uh, to vote for him. And he walked into Eichler's uh, farm store, obviously the legendary farm store uh, in, uh, in Brooklyn, and uh, there were a bunch of Hasidic kids, and the Hasidic kids got a sense, okay, this is uh, Mike Pence. They were sort of talking, getting excited. And he went over to them, and they tried to engage him. There was this video where he says, what do you guys do? And they say, well, we're in yeshiva. And he says, well, what are you guys studying? And they basically had to explain to him, you know, like, Baba Kama. And his response was like, well, do you guys learn the book of Joshua? You know, and he was, they're like, absolutely not, right? And there was a certain sense that, like, the book of Joshua, the more universal messaging, right, the larger ideas of Judaism, yeah, they're critical, but they don't sort of isolate us in the sense of, like, sort of anchor. I don't mean isolate in the sense of being isolationist. I mean, create a sense that we're doing something which is uniquely Jewish, So I think that, you know, oftentimes part of the challenge of like the bigger ideas in Judaism is making sure that those bigger ideas actually are sort of funneled through the rabbinic tradition. You know, if you think about like sort of going just defaulting back to like defaulting back to like Tzeg Tzeg Tirdov or Tzel Melokim or Kedoshim Tiyu, right? So those are all really meaningful, but they become uniquely Jewish when you think about how those virtues express themselves through the Talmud and the classical codes. So at least for me personally, one of the ways I think we can sort of integrate uh, this model is obviously what you suggested about, you know, broadening the curriculum to Agadah, et cetera, if we're talking auto- autobiographically, you know, I spent a lot of time working on Tame Amitzvot, and I think that Tame Amitzvot is like a lost art. And I think that if we can recapture and re-engage Tame Amitzvot, that will also help. But I will say, I think it's always important that we, always, that we feel like we're engaging in something which can contribute something that's uniquely Jewish, right? And the way to do that is to integrate the Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat that if it's always going backwards, right, you get a sense that we're sort of you know, going back to universal virtues, which are critical, right? But they don't have that sense that we're contributing to something which is uniquely ours. Now, I'll sort of just follow up with that. Um, just experientially, you're somebody who spent a lot of time in yeshiva, both as an educator and as a student. Has your personal relationship to the world of details uh, evolved over time? Like when you were, let's say, you know, 15 years old learning in the yeshiva of Long Beach, right? Were you some, were you the type of student who skipped over all the agatitas because you were only interested in details? Or even for a young age, do you feel like, wait a second, the religious worldview has to be more integrated. And therefore we always want to sort of bring together the uh, halacha and the meta-halacha or the halacha and the agadah. This is like a unique feature of your own personal development or is this something that, you know, were they telling Gadolm stories about you when you were five years old that when the Rebbe asked Akasha, you said there has to be more meaning here and therefore you were running to classic Hasidic Svarim? Okay. Because uh, a lot of things to catch up on now. So first of all, Reb David is more modest than I am because I snuck in my book reference and he passed up a great chance to sneak in his. So those who want to follow up on his thoughts about Tamiya Mitzvot, that's a lot of what his first book is about, about finding meaning in Mitzvot. Um, secondly, I just want to clarify, I'm in for to a broader curriculum, but I, I'm very happy that Everyone learns Gemara during morning Seder. I mean, I think Gemara is a crucial part, including the halachic sections, is a crucial part of yeshiva curriculum. I'm just not going to develop that now because that could be its own podcast, like why yeshiva would value learning Gemara so much. So I want a broader curriculum, but not to the exclusion of classical yeshiva Gemara learning. Uh, in terms of my autobiography, I should say a couple things. First of all, uh, I was not like a serious Torah student at the age of 14. So I'm not sure I had a position one way or the other yet. Okay, uh, in fact, I should just say, like, you know, if you haven't woken up to, uh, you know, academic striving yet and you're 15 years old, like, don't give up. Like, it could happen later in life. Like, you can't always decide what's going to be at that age. 
But I think throughout my life, I actually did always want something else. I think the way my life has changed is that what that something else was has changed over time. Like there was a discovery of Agadah, a discovery of Rav Hutner, a discovery of Rav Cook, right? A discovery of Rav Tzadok. I think there are various discoveries I've had in terms of where I'll find that uh, larger meaning, the broad sweeping vision. Uh, I think it fits very well. So a well-known professor, uh, Professor Isidore Twersky from Boston, he has a number of scholarly articles, and I don't know what they're all called, but they're basically all about Torah and the other thing. Like, what is the other thing beyond halakha that gives, you know, ideology and meaning and purpose to life? And I'll talk about those who did, for some it was for Tanakh, for some it was philosophy, for some it was Kabbalah, but there was always like something else there. So uh, I guess my life has been, uh, as Ray Twersky lays out, just with a shift of what that other thing is. It's interesting because, um, you know, I, that specific uh, model, Rabbi Twersky, that you mentioned before, I actually first came across that in an article written by Rabbi Guido Rothstein about uh, variations of Talmud Torah. And he quoted this passage from Rabbi uh, Twersky saying that in the medieval period, almost all medieval thinkers were always involved in halacha plus is either halacha plus philosophy or halacha plus Kabbalah, right? And the claim was basically that something sort of shifts in the modern period, right? That in the medieval period, there's an awareness that there has to be an integration. And certainly in the Talmud, there's an integrated text of, uh, of Agadan Halacha. So the question is, well, sort of what shifts, right? In other words, why is it that in the modern period, you know, Abraham Joshua Heschel, it was critical of the Orthodox community for being, you know, pan-halachic, right? To being sort of focusing on halachic details and not sort of anchoring it in a larger vision. So that there is an interesting question, sort of like, what motivated the shift back to heavy discourse almost exclusively in the context of halachic detail? I know, for example, in the famous article, Rupture and Reconstruction, Sochaim Zalvejic talks about that, you know, there was this broken identity post-Holocaust, people felt less anchored and sort of the details gave them an anchor in sort of the tradition that they didn't have because of all the tragedy of what happened post-Holocaust. But I do think, you know, getting back to Rav Cook where we started, is that Rav Cook has this vision that there will be a time, like a messianic era, where somehow things will start to change, things will start to shift. Now, sort of bringing the conversation full circle, you mentioned at the beginning that you have this new project called the Alt-Shift. So in Israel specifically, there are rabbis and there are thinkers who are trying to do this integrated model of details and meaning specifically in the context of Gemara. The most obvious example of this is Rav Shagar, who's uh, unfortunately no longer alive. But if you read his books on uh, Gemara and Halacha, it's a very different project than, let's say, Rav Lichtenstein's Svarim and Shas, Rav Yaakov Nagain. Other different personalities are trying to sort of integrate this model. I'm curious, as somebody who teaches Gemara beyond the integration of the Agadah into the larger sort of corpus, do you think that these contemporary approaches are valuable in terms of making sort of this conversation a more frontal part of even the sort of denser elements of our sort of religious curriculum? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I do agree that there's some good work being done in this in Israel. I'll say this. I was in Rav Luchenstein's Gemarshir for more than one year. And Rav Luchenstein has a tremendous uh, impact on me. I have a lot of gratitude to him. Uh, but I will say that his Gemarshir was really, you know, brisker, lumdus, and that's it. Right. It's funny because Rav Luchenstein is a person who has tremendous insight into the world of Jewish thought and to the world of the spirit. But it was always for some other shear. It never made its way into the Gemara class, no matter what the topic was. And I admit that's not the way I teach and not the way I learn, uh, that I would like there to be Jewish thought questions in Gemara. And again, it's, I'm not, not asking the lack of questions. I'm not stopping the lumdus. But I think there are a hundred examples. Like you are teaching a sugya about slavery. 
So maybe you should discuss like how halacha countenances slavery and what are the details. I'm, I'm not sure you should give like a conceptual shear that doesn't raise that question. Why do we have avdut in the halachic system? Uh, and sometimes it doesn't have to be even a moral conundrum. Uh, I, the Shiva was learning brachot for the first ever this year. And one of the things that comes up is that it may be that the earlier bracha of Berkhan Muslim are the right, uh, where the fourth bracha is the Rabbanan. And at one point, the Gemara says that they made this bracha when Haruge Betar, when those killed in the Bar Kokhva rebellion, at first they weren't able to be buried. And then there was this relief that, oh, it's not respectful, the bodies are rotting, now they're able to be buried, right? They're Nitan Likvura. So I think you, you can't just run through that. You have to ask, like, why was this considered such a significant event? Like, a lot of interesting events happened in Jewish history. Why is Haruge Beta being Nitan Likvura? Why is that worthy of adding a fourth brach onto Birkat Mazon? So that's a good example. I don't think we, it's, I think often people think, oh, if there's a moral conundrum, I see that that's relevant to bring up. This is not a moral conundrum, but I think it is a machshava question. And I'll just add that sometimes getting the answer to such a question might involve widening your range of sources. Like, if I have a question on the legal concepts, I'm pretty confident that I know Tosfos and the Rashba are going to be extremely helpful. But they might not raise the question I just asked, and maybe the answer is in the Meshachachma. Maybe the answer is in a commentary on Humash. Maybe it's in a Hasidic Sefer. But I would say it's still not extraneous that's relevant to what we're learning so I, I very much identify what you said and i think this should be part of gamar curriculums asking these kind of questions maybe we could just end uh, the last segment by talking about uh, a topic which is certainly related um, and that's the question of whether or not we should think about sort of having a more detailed oriented approach to the world of interpersonal mitzvot i came across a very interesting sefer about uh, three years ago that's called the shulchan aruch where somebody, he's a rabbi in remote, a Haredi rabbi actually in remote, he tried to create a book which the aesthetics looked exactly like the Mishnah Brura, and the goal was clearly to create a, at least an aesthetic parallel. And the idea was to try and say that we can sort of take these sort of more broad ethical categories that come up in the Torah and the Gemara, etc., and start to concretize them, not exactly with the same precision as you have, like in Shemir Shabbos, but generally speaking, there should be more precision in terms of thinking about how we conceptualize sort of our ethical uh, behavior. Now, to not, not to make the podcast too contemporary, but I do find sometimes that this is an interesting project. I'm not sure where it will go. But we do have situations, I mean, even right now in Israel, we're talking about a situation where, you know, Ari Derry, who, uh, you know, at least aesthetically, you know, associates with the Orthodox community, is somebody who, you know, may be, you know, not allowed to be a minister because of major ethical breaches, right? So we can all agree that uh, if, you know, he did something which was an overt religious sort of breach in terms of Inan Lamakom, we'd be able to point to it and say, here's a specific problem. I think sometimes one of the challenges of having an area where in the context of our Benam Lamakom, it's not necessarily as detail-oriented, it relies sometimes on some broader categories, it unfortunately can sort of lend itself to people taking advantage of the system. So I'm curious if you could just reflect for a few minutes about the trade-offs of having a system of Benam Lamakom, which is not as concretized the same way Benam Lamakom is. And there have been attempts, for example, like the Rambam, to try and sort of create, like, you know, Hilchot Deot. But generally speaking, traditional Judaism, at least in the legal sense, has sort of more moved away from that stuff. So do you think that that's sort of uh, something we should consider? Or do you think, no, that common sense and general sort of values should be guiding our ethical behavior? Obviously, there are halachas when it comes to theft, when it comes to murder, et cetera, et cetera. But generally speaking, you don't have a book 
for example, called like, you know, lying kehilchata, right? So the question would be, should we sort of aspire for something like that or would that actually undermine part of what we're trying to experience? Okay, so I, I definitely want there to be a more of a communal focus on ethics with the sense that, like, as you said, no one would say, oh, he's a from guy, but he's Michal Shabbos. But somehow you could say he's a from guy, but he's a white collar criminal who, uh, you know, embezzled money. So I definitely want that. I just don't think the route is to try to make more details. Because I just think these are kind of values that don't lend themselves to that. Like, imagine if we made like a hilchot arrogance. This is exactly the amount of pride you should have. Or hilchot anger. Everyone should get angry 1.6 times a month. Obviously, it doesn't make any sense. It, it depends on who you are, what your situation is. It's not the kind of thing that can be boiled down to details. And I'll even say that sometimes it might be harmful to do so. Uh, there is an argument made that the Chafetz Chaim's Hilcha Lashon Hara doesn't really flow so naturally from the sources, that Lashon Hara was not a halacha like, I don't know, Yerodea, like uh, Basar B'chalav. It doesn't really have that. And maybe it should have been more like anger and arrogance. Like, this is a tremendous value not to speak barely about other people. But you don't have such concrete rules. And maybe it's even gotten the way a little bit. Like, people will misapply it and think that, you know, we shouldn't tell that this fellow is guilty of sexual abuse because it values it violates Lashonara. Now, I'm not saying the Chavetz Chaim would say that. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that maybe sometimes the problem is that we think it is too detailed, where if we just had as a broader value, we'd actually apply it more in a healthier and more successful way. Yeah, maybe I'll just end by sort of referencing a citation that I know that both of us have spoken about in the past. It's a passage from the Sri Aish where he talks about why it is we don't say uh, brachas on interpersonal commandments. And he makes this claim where he says that basically uh, the purpose of interpersonal commandments is to bring people together. Right? And if everything was legislated, or right, if you had, for example, brachas and all these interpersonal commandments, the claim would be basically that you'd be turning a subject, meaning a human being, into an object. You'd be turning a human into a lulav. So if every time you wanted to, you know, go do a nichum avelim or bikr cholim, you went to the hospital instead of baruch Hashem, levakir atacholim, so the person, the person who's sick would think, wait a second, you're just using me to score mitzvah points. So I think that's, this is actually an example where, you know, by not having a specific book on hilchot bikr cholim, right, and having it flow more naturally, from a basic sense of what is right, that that actually facilitates what the Torah's larger purpose is, at least in the realm of Enam Lechavero, which is to facilitate a sense of fraternity. That's an example where actually the detail or the lack of detail, the lack of the bracha, is actually trying to indicate something more profound about the Torah's larger moral system. So obviously this is a critical topic, a topic that requires a lot more uh, exploration and engagement, but I think at least today we had a fruitful dialogue to begin the discussion to sort of articulate some of the challenges, and I want to uh, thank Rablau again for not only being the first uh, returning guest on the Right to Podcast, but for uh, continuing to share wisdom and engage in this uh, very meaningful conversation. Thanks for David. Looking forward to the next one. And as I always say, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at orightopodcast at gmail.com. Thankfully, we have gotten some very positive feedback. We've gotten some critical feedback, which is always great as well. So feel free to reach out. If you have topics that you want to suggest, we're open to topics. We're open to speakers. We are open really to anything. So we're curious to hear your feedback. And just realize that when you do when you do podcasts, it's not really a podcast if you don't say, please give us a five-star review on <laughs> iTunes, Spotify, and everything else. It really helps spread the community of ideas. I've heard that in many podcasts, and now we've officially become podcast because we have ended the podcast with that calling card so thank you very much and looking forward to uh, the next podcast